The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. All right. Hey, so this morning we're going to conclude um, a very long discourse that began in chapter 12 of verse 1. Uh, that Jesus has been working through, particularly between his disciples and the crowd. He keeps going back and forth, and he has specific words for the disciples, and he has specific words for the crowd, and, and we're trying to figure out, okay, how do those words inform us living some 2,000 years later, right? But I think it's very important that anytime we're in the Bible, that we, we remain in context. And the reason I say that is because this text that we're looking at this morning follows Jesus' parabolic statement about weather signs concerning Israel, right? He says, how is it you can understand the weather, but you can't understand that Messiah is standing right in front of you? You go to the temple on Saturday, and you pray that the Messiah might come. And here I am, and I'm healing people. I've raised the dead. I've said I've forgiven sins. You said no one but God could do that, and I did that, and yet you still can't see me. And that was the point he kept driving home to the crowd. Why can you not recognize? Well, it appears that some in the crowd were paying attention to what Jesus was saying because they wondered then if this outrageous act of violence had a larger significance, right? So that's where we find ourselves, 13 verses 1 through 5. You're going to see a a horrific event that happened at the hands of an evil man. And then you're going to read about, we're going to read about something that just seems like That's a coincidence, even though there's no such thing in God's sovereignty, but that this tower just happened to fall. And the crowds are trying to figure out, okay, you said we ought to be paying attention to the signs. Is this a particular thing we should be seeing? So look what they say, verse 1 of chapter 13 of Luke. There were some present at that time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. Right? Like, that's a heavy text. It's a heavy text because Jesus is just unrelenting. Hey, Jesus, got a question. You heard about the the thing Pilate did? You heard about the the news in Jerusalem? And and they didn't say anything, but he can see their heart. He says, oh, do you think that they were worse sinners? That's why this happened to them. Mm, no. Actually, I got some other news for you, though. If you don't repent, worse is going to happen to you. I mean, could you just imagine? Don't let the Word of God not be shocking to you. That's a shocking statement. They're paying attention, but it, it's not clear that they are seeing quite clear yet, right? Because it appears they're wrongly applying specific sin to this horrific event, And by the way, that's an attractive way for a lot of people to think about life. People who have suffered hardships and calamities, 
People may look upon them and say, oh, I wonder what they did. I mean, this is what the crowd is doing. They're attempting to answer the great mystery of human existence. Why do bad things happen? Why does suffering happen? And that's what they're trying to answer. And it appears that some in the crowd approach this question from a very smug, self-righteous, or religious worldview. Or at least a very one-sided or incomplete worldview, right? We've all seen, heard, or even participated in this kind of distorted thinking, right? Something bad happens to us, and we're like, man, I wonder what I did to deserve that. Right? You ever said that? I, I, I guarantee if you haven't said it out loud, you probably have thought it at one time or another in your life. Or, or something tragic happens to someone else, and you, th- you wonder, ooh, I wonder what they did to make God so angry at them. Or we see a marriage unravel and we think, man, they should have learned the the five love languages better. And had they done that, maybe their marriage would still be together. Or we see someone's teen rebelling and they grew up in the church and they're making foolish decisions. And we think they should have disciplined better. They should have discipled better. They should have done family devotions better. They should have taught the book of Proverbs better. Maybe then they wouldn't have to endure this shame. Just think about natural disasters for a moment, right? You can basically guarantee that there's going to be, if there's a a natural disaster like just happened in Hawaii, you can almost guarantee some some dude's going to come on television or TikTok, right? It's all TikTok now. who, Who even watches the news anymore? That's not a real question. I'm just saying no one does. We get our news from TikTok. Here's a five second sound bite. And, and I, I even I had seen it. I don't have TikTok, but it came across my social media. And there's someone saying, it's because of all the wicked things that were happening in Hawaii, this has happened. But then they go and they talk about, but there's this Catholic church. And it's still standing amongst all the rubble. Praise God. It's a miracle. And then I think, well, but what about the Episcopal church that burnt down two blocks from it? Because that's exactly what happened. Or... Or I wonder if all the houses that burnt down were all a bunch of pagans who just shake their fist at God. My guess is there are some who love the Lord who lost their homes. This happens. This, by the way, that type of thing is then generally followed up by some sweet but misguided Christian who will post this text or a text like it, right? They'll post the picture of the horror. Right? And then they'll say this from Second Chronicles 7:14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Ugh. When I see that, my head goes poof. Because I want to engage it. I want to engage it right now because I want to fix all that really bad thinking. That is stinking thinking. If you have that thinking, it is terrible. Why? Because that text is for Israel. It's not for America. And spoiler alert, America is not the new Israel. And, and when you see this kind of stuff, really what you're implying is that if my life is going swell, it's because of my goodness. It's because of my moral superiority. It's because God has spared me. Why? Well, because I'm pretty awesome. Well, then what happens when something bad happens? You're not pretty awesome anymore. Apparently, God's not pleased with you anymore. And none of this is gospel. It's garbage. 
You may have that thinking. I would ask you to really reconsider, and I'm praying already, and I've been praying all week that God would give you sight and a tender heart to repent. Here's why. Because all of that sounds so very neat and so very tidy and so very self-satisfying, but it's oh so very wrong. It's not Bible. Now, you could draw conclusions there, but most of the time we're confusing Israel with what God's doing in the world today, as if we understand all the things he's doing today. Here's the thing. Jesus refuses to play their game. Instead, here's what he says. He answered them with a diagnostic question, and then he reveals their heart with his answer. He says, oh, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than other Galileans? Hmm, because they have suffered in this way. It doesn't appear as though he gave them much time to answer, right? Because it's already bad enough. And then he goes, no, no. But I do tell you this, but unless you repent, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he's not talking about perishing at the hands of Pilate. He's talking about final judgment. Because that's what this whole text and this whole dialogue has been since chapter 12, verse 1. See, see the Bible is answered to the question, why do bad things happen? We sometimes will say to good people, but I'm not going to go there. Because let's just be real. There's no good people. There's Jesus Christ who is infinitely good. There's the rest of us. And you're like, well, I'm not as bad as other people. But you're still, I mean, it's just we're talking a degree of separation. You're evil. How do I know that? Because Jesus said and, and in case you think, oh, well, what about you? Me too. Me too. That's what the Bible teaches, right? So why do bad things happen? It's not a simple question. I mean, the book of Job gives many different variations to answer that question. It explores it. I can't get into all those things today. i got to stay within this particular text. But here's the thing. You can look at the problem of evil and death and link it to sin. You can do that. You should do that. Why? Because it's biblical. It's biblical. It's not wrong to do that. The world's fractured. It's broken. There's not one piece of this world that's not been infected and affected by sin. And the wages of sin, a wage is something you deserve because you've earned it, is death. Okay? And death is much more than a dirt nap, right? It is that, but it's much more than that. It, for humans who have rebelled against God and not received grace and mercy and the forgiveness of God, it's eternal suffering in a real place called hell. But I've got to tell you, these little bugs that everybody is like squashing around here, what are those called? I didn't know. I couldn't think of it. This happens to me. Lantern flies. They, they're, they're already pretty, I think. They look like a ladybug, only bigger, right? But apparently we've deemed them evil, and now we have set out a hitman, and everyone, I watched a guy the other day, and I thought he was dancing a jig, but he was actually trying to get one, because he thinks if he, if he squishes enough, they'll save all the trees. Those little bugs are cursed. You might laugh, but all creation's cursed. It's warring against God because it's broken. It's fractured. We must accept the reality of this. No amount of bug spray is going to fix it. There will be a new bug, a new infestation. I mean, it's just going to happen until Jesus returns and makes all things new. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't go squishing them, right? Do your thing. That's your civil duty, whatever. <laughs> but if we think we could stop their invasion because we're tramping on them, that's just ridiculous. But anyway, that's another story for another day.
it's not wrong to look at all the wicked, evil, broken things in the world and say it's sin. It, it is sin. We must accept that reality. Tragedies come to all. Note that Jesus does not say that these sufferers were sinless. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say they were innocent. Only that the diagnostic or the disaster is no gauge of the degree of their sinfulness. That's all he's saying, right? It, it appears these folks are just the run-of-the-mill sinners who bad things happen to. Sometimes unthinkable things happen to the most godly and committed. For instance, Jesus. Oh, shocker. I mean, he, he had no sin. And yet, he was homeless, spit upon, beat, nailed to a cross naked, abandoned by his friends. I mean, we, we got to get our thinking right when it comes to suffering. And especially when it comes to the New Testament's understanding of it. What, what we should not do is look at any one disaster or tragedy and presume that we know God's larger purpose in it. We should not do that. To do that not only is, is just so wrong, but it adds possibly unneeded suffering to the people who are already hurting. What they need is they need your compassion. They, they need, even if it was their actions that caused it, you going around saying, told you so, doesn't help. It doesn't help. What they need is they need the same thing you and I need. They need grace. They, they don't need law. Law doesn't change anyone's behavior long term. It just proves you can't measure up. Oh, but we love to give law. We don't want law. We don't want law to come our way, but we're fine with giving it because we like to be God. And what we like to do is we like to say, well, at least I'm not as bad as you. That's what we're really saying when we say that. When we see suffering in our lives or in the world or around us, we need to resist the urge to draw unfounded or even rapid conclusions about God's purpose in sending or allowing it. Therefore, the real question is not, why do bad things happen to sinners? That's not the question. Here's the real question everybody ought to ask. Why does Jesus, why does God allow good things to happen to people who deserve death? That's the question. I'll tell you what, yesterday I had a great day. I can't go into it all. You want to hang out with me afterwards? We'll talk. But I just had a great day. I mean, I just enjoyed time with my wife. I enjoyed reading. I enjoyed coffee. I enjoyed a great breakfast. I enjoyed a, a handful of teenage girls that spent the night with my teenage girl. Like, it was just good. It was just good. Why did I get to do that? Because I had obeyed all week. No. <laughs> I mean, I don't laugh as though, like, I, I didn't even mean that to be funny. What I'm saying is God's grace is not based on my good behavior. And, and disastrous things are not necessarily based on my not doing things right. If you've had ice cream or bacon, then you've had good things happen to you. And you didn't deserve it. And that's just simple stuff. We're not even talking about the cross yet, right? I mean, I have the joy and the privilege of serving with a ministry called Johnny and Friends. I can't go into that either, but if you want to hear more about it, let's keep talking afterwards. 
And I've got to tell you, it would break your heart to hear the stories of abuse that come from the mouths of family, friends, and pastors who say they love God and love these people who profess to love Christ, who wrongly apply their particular tragedy to, due to the sin that happened in their lives or in the, their lives of their family members. I'm telling you, it would, it would break your heart. It would break your heart. And I'm like, do you, even, do you even read the Bible? Do you even understand the gospel? And I don't say that from a place of, of pride. I say it from a place of brokenheartedness. John 9, 1 through 3 says this. As he passed by, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him. They're trying to figure it out. Rabbi, teacher, who sinned? Who sinned? The reason they're asking this is because this would happen often in the Old Testament. Who sinned, this man or his parents? There's no other option. It's got to be one or the other. That he was born blind and Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but the works, that the works of God, the miracle of God might be displayed in him. You and I face a major, major handicap in our efforts to see where and how God is at work. We're not God. Oh, and when we get up in our little ivory tower and pretend that we are, we, we not only grieve God, we, we hurt the people He loves. See, Jesus taught the universality of, of sin and death and its consequences. What I'm not saying is that sin doesn't have consequences. I'm just saying we don't always know why something's happening. But as the, the believer, you ought to be on your face thinking and praying and asking God, is there something I'm doing in my life that is not pleasing to you, that you have laid the confession and repentance upon me, and I have hardened my heart and stiff-armed you and your grace, and this is why you have potentially allowed it to come into my life, to, to jar me from the sin who wants to enslave me and kill me, that you have died to set me free from. I'm not saying that that can't happen. But I'm saying what you can't do is think you understand it all. Or I can understand it all. Right? Here's what we do know, though. We do know that the Lord is gracious beyond measure to us. And He works in and through all things. All things, including your success or your failures, to bring about His plans, which are, by the way, stunningly beautiful. So... Point one, suffering, no matter the reason, is an opportunity to reflect and repent. That's, that's the first point. In short, earthly disasters, or disasters that just happen in your family, are, are really caution lights. They're a time to, to seek the Lord, to humble yourself before Him, and to, to do work with Him. Why? Because suffering is a doorway God often chooses to enter our lives in order to bring about repentance. Absolutely. Like it or not, in our fallen and fractured world, self-righteous sinners like you and I tend not to find God in the sunshine and the things of life that are bright and sunny and always awesome. It's often in the darkness or in the shattered pieces of a life that, that has just been wrecked. That's my, that's my story. 
The Lord, I mean, I can look back. The Lord had been pursuing me much of my life, and I, ooh, man, Heisman Trophy. I wanted nothing to do with it. I just kept stiff-arming, dodging, moving, shaking, baking, right? And, and I even got to a place where I'm done being a really bad sinner. I'm going to clean up my act, and I'm going to be a good boy, not even understanding that that was in itself sin. And here's what it took for me, for me. 18 broken bones, a drunk driver hitting me, and, and having to struggle to walk for a year. To be to the place where I could say, oh, I tap. I tap. I, I give. I need you. Oh, and he met me there. And he saved me. Here's why I say this. Because probably the most dangerous place for a person to be is flourishing according to the American dream. It's probably the most dangerous place you could ever be. Why? Well, because you don't need God. You're good. You got this. Go get it, champ. <laughs> like when your bills are paid and there's no suffering, psh, my guess is you're not just like, thank you, Jesus. Now you might be, praise the Lord for his work in your life. But most people are just adrift and they don't realize it. And then something happens and we say, where were you? Never wondering why the 14 years of things going great, you never thought where he was. That's exactly what you think you deserve. See, a self-righteous person will acknowledge the existence of God, but never see a need for him. Never. Think about it. Re rescue only comes for those who can't help themselves. You don't need rescued if you got it figured out. Salvation is for, is, is for those who have no other option. Oh, God, help me. Because that's really what salvation is. Help me. I've tried every other avenue. Nothing works. Jesus, I need you. And here's the deal. Jesus desires that Israel repent and, and receive the gift of salvation. And know this. He desires that you repent and that you receive the gift of salvation. If you haven't already, if you have, hallelujah, praise God. But if you haven't, oh, know that he's willing to do anything to bring you into his grace and kindness. See, repentance, though, is often a very confused or misunderstood word. Really, it is. We often think that it just means saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Or, or maybe we've been told it, it means feeling really, 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 really bad about ourselves. I would say it might involve those things, but it's not primarily that. Biblically speaking, it, it simply means to change one's mind. But, but that looks like doing a U-turn or a 180, right? Uh, turning to Jesus from sin. And when I say sin... I think we've got to be really clear here. Yeah, I mean all sin, but primarily the sin of self-salvation. Primarily the sin of trying to find life in the created things instead of the creator. That's what I mean. Because some people, you know, when, when they repent, when they turn to Christ, guess what? They didn't get all their outward action sin figured out. And then they'll say, did I ever really repent? Well, that's a good question to ask, but i got to tell you right now, it's when you turn from, I'm the king, 
I'm the queen. Don't care what you have to say. Bye-bye. To, I need you. Oh God, how I need you. Oh God, forgive me. Oh God, help me. Oh God, save me. Save me. Save me from me trying to save myself. Save me from my rebellion against you. Save me from Satan, sin, death. Impart life to me. That, that's what it looks like. And, and the reason I say that is because in this specific text, the words repentance is in regards to final judgment. And we should not remove it from its context. So to help us understand more, Jesus continues. And he uses an illustration to bring about our understanding of this word repentance. So look with me, Luke 13, 6 through 9. See, some people will preach this separate. Oh, and if you do, you just, you just butcher the word. You just butcher the word. Because this is an exact understanding of what he's saying to Israel. So he says, listen, he says, A man had a fig tree planted in a vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for these, for these three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put manure on it. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but, but if not, you can cut it down. Whew. See, in Jesus' parable, I don't think it's a stretch to say the fig tree is Israel or the temple. It's, it's, it's one or the other, okay? And, and here's the deal. It, it deserves to be destroyed. Ooh, that's an uncomfortable truth, right? It's using up all these resources, and it's not producing any of the fruit. Israel has a false sense of security in that moment. And, and, and Israel, for the, the large part, is very frustrated that these Gentiles are, are enjoying the grace of God, and that these lepers, and, and these women, and all these people, these lowly people, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are very, very upset. The very religious elite. But here's the deal. They're using up resources. They're not producing fruit. And the vine dresser intercedes. Intercedes for them. And he asks for an extension. He asks for an opportunity for the tree to become fruitful. The vine dresser pleads for patience and for an opportunity for the tree to produce. See, the point is, the time for repentance is fleeting for Israel in that moment. He's pressing home the urgency of the opportunity. I mean, what a, what a beautiful gift and a picture of God's grace and mercy and how patient he is. He's so patient. However, here's the warning. The warning is this. There may be a wideness to God's mercy, but there is a limit to his patience. Oh, he is so patient. But there is a limit. There will come a day when Jesus will return. He will rip open the sky and he will judge the living and the dead. But you don't have to wait for Jesus to return for you to receive judgment because you may die before he comes. And that might be today. 
Your life's a vapor. See, there are many who scoff at the idea of God's wrath because many people wrongly assume, well, Jesus hasn't come back yet. It's been, what, 2,000-some years. I guess he's just forgot about that, and we've gotten away with it. So I'm just going to keep on partying like it's 1999. By the way, I lived when it was 1999. It wasn't that exciting. <laughs> it really wasn't. But they're not even recognizing the present reality or, or realizing that the only reason that the full and final arrival of God's judgment has not come back in Christ yet is because of this. Listen to what 2 Peter 3, 9 says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should seek and reach repentance. Romans 2, 4, Paul says basically the same thing. He says, or do you presume on the richness, the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is so kind. You're like, well, I don't know. My life's been really hard. I don't know. He doesn't feel kind. I get that. Well, I've been there. I've been there. He doesn't feel kind. Here's what you've got to know. Your feelings lie. They're not, they're not bad. God gave them to you. They're just not trustworthy. You need the word of God. And then what you see is on every page, God's just unveiling his mercy, his kindness, his love, his grace. For who? Sinners. Like you. Like me. We look to the cross and we see God's kindness and his love on full display. Tim Keller once said, um, and I think this is a very helpful quote. I've used it many times. I want you to keep hearing it because I think if you get it, you understand that repentance is a kindness. And he says this, the power of the gospel comes in two movements. It first says, I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared to believe. You've got to come to grips with that. But then it quickly follows with, and I am more accepted in love than I ever dared hope. Now, to give context, he's talking about those who have repented of their sin and received grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So I'm, I'm way worse than I ever thought, and, and, and I'm way more loved than I ever dreamed. That's what he's saying. And this is good news. And the reason this is helpful in the discussion of repentance is because repeatedly throughout the New Testament, saving faith and repentance are inseparable. Inseparable. It would be like taking two two-by-fours, slapping them together with some actual good like glue, not like the junk we generally get. And then like you try to rip them apart and there are just there are broken pieces on both boards. You cannot separate them and leave them once like they were. They are together, right? And, and, and here's the hard and yet simple lesson. Ready? Repentance is not a work we perform. It's a gift that God provides. Oh, man, if you'll get this. If you will get this. See, it's, it's not primarily an emotion that we stir up within ourselves. But it's actually a motion or a miracle that Christ performs within us. It's what he does. This motion is always away from us. It's away from us. Too many times repentance is about navel-gazing in the church. It's navel-gazing. Oh, I didn't do enough this week, right? 
But the miracle that Christ performs in us turns us away from our navel, away from ourselves, and to God who's done it all perfectly in Jesus Christ. And from the cross, he says, it's finished. It's finished, right? And so this motion, when it happens to turn us away from ourselves and to God, away from our sin, our shame, our guilt, our self-deception, and our self-deceived methods of salvation, that it's all about me. And if it's meant to be, it'll happen because I'm going to do it. I'll get myself to heaven. It, it never works. And not only that, it's just, it's such an insult to God. It's such an insult to God because God put on flesh to come and do what you and I could never do. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. And he desires that you would just turn from yourselves and receive him. Receive him. It's, it's not... It's not so much that we repent, but that God's love repents us. Why do I say God's love repents us? Because it's his kindness. It's his love. It's his mercy. It's his grace that causes us to want to embrace him. So, if that's true, and I will stake my life on it, that it is then true, here's your second point. We have two today. We're in the fall, I'm thinking. <laughs> true faith and repentance will, and, and I specifically use this word on purpose, always lead to a fruitful life of love for God and others. <clears throat> We're going to have to unpack that. Martin Luther once said this, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. Meaning, listen, true gospel faith and repentance will always lead to good works. But, but, capital B-U-T, but, salvation in no way comes through our good works. Don't confuse what the gospel is with what the, the, the good Lord does in and through the work of the gospel. Don't confuse those two. See, the gospel is good news. It's not good advice. Oh, how many times I hear that? I got some good news, and what it is is it's advice of all the things I got to do still. That's not good news. That's advice. Keep your advice. I need news. The gospel is not primarily a way of life. Well, I'm just living out the gospel. No, you're not. You're not. I'm telling you, be specific. The gospel is what Christ has done in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And we are called to respond to the God who is good news. Good news. Oh, I've come to save. Trust me. Like, that's exactly what's happening within this gospel. It's not something we do, but something that has been done for us. It's been done for us in the life, in the death, in the resurrection of Christ. And it's something we must respond to. And you think, well, I'm just not ready. Well, trust me, when you say that, you've responded. You, you have no options. You will respond to the gospel. You ready? You'll respond with, oh, God, I love you. Oh, God, I love you. Forgive me. Receive me. And he says, oh, you're why I came. Come on home. Or you'll say, I want nothing to do with you. But most people don't do that. Most people are indifferent. And let me tell you, 
Indifference is just as much as giving a big swollen finger in the middle of your hand to Christ as it is outright rejecting him. And if that offends you, I'm sorry, but you know what offends me is religion, who just keeps on pounding the drum of do better, try harder, and then maybe God will love you. Give me a break. Just give me a break. When I read this text, you know what I see? Jesus gets his hands into the soil in our hard hearts and he digs around it and he grabs the roots and he shakes them a little bit through the life's ups and downs. He breaks and heals our hearts. He pries our white knuckles free of the things of this earth that keep us so enslaved. Why? So that we might repent. So that we might believe in his kindness in Jesus. And when you believe in him, listen, you will understand that the full weight of God's wrath fell like a tower on Christ instead of you. Why? So that you can receive Jesus who willingly went to the tree to make it a way for sinners like us to have life with him forever. That's kindness. Do you remember back in, in Luke early on in chapter 3, we met this guy, John the Baptizer. Remember this cat? Right? You got to love John the Baptizer, right? They say the Baptist. He wasn't a Baptist. Um, here's the deal. You didn't love him because of his fashion, right? He had a camel belt, right? Yeah, I imagine a big old beard, right? He's coming out and he's yelling repentance. The kingdom of God's at hand. You didn't love him because of his diet. He had like locusts dipped in honey, right? This is a wild man. Why we loved him is because he's a tell-it-as-it-is preacher, he doesn't mix any words. He just says it. He does not come and fit inside your safe, neat, tidy, little box, well-dressed, slick, predictable, comfortable religion. That's why we love him. He's not concerned about being popular. He, he's a straight talker. He's a straight shooter. He says it how it is. Why? Because he loved God and he desired that people would know of his love. And here's what he said in Luke 3, 7 through 9. Pay attention because it's, it's so connected to what we're reading in, in Luke 13. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Now, imagine that as a greeting. If I just get up here some Sunday morning, instead of talking about pumpkin spice and everything that's nice, I'm like, you brood of vipers. I'll tell you, if someone did that and I was at their church, I'm out. I don't know where it's going, but it ain't good. I'm just out. I'm leaving, right? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Listen to what he says, though. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits with keeping with repentance. And do not, listen to these words, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That's religion, by the way. I grew up in, in the Methodist church. I grew up in the Presbyterian church. My parents had a pew with their name on it. We gave lots of money. We built that church. Oh, did you? Oh, we have Abraham as our father. He, but then listen to what he says. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I mean, John is stern. This is threatening, a threatening word coming from a prophet. And his call is a, a, a call to repentance. 
It's not a demand to clean up your act. It's not a demand to be all that you can be. It's a turn from your self-saving ideas, from your religion, from your tithing out of your mint, from doing all these things. Turn from it. Repent from it. It will not do you any good to say, Abraham is my father. It will do you no good. Turn to God who, who, listen, has already turned to you in Christ. Oh man, I love that thought. He didn't turn his back on you. He went to the cross has, and, and took on the sin of the world and had his father who he said, my God, my God, not my father, my father, turn his back on him. Oh, but he was peering down the lens too. Why? Because it pleased him to crush his son. And that's going to be something you have to work through. Why? Because God's wrath had to be extinguished. Repentance is an invitation to confess not just our failures. I think that's what we only think of, but our perceived goodness. And our need for God and our need for God's mercy. It's, a, it's an invitation, perhaps, to say one of the very hardest things for an American or a human to say. I need help. I can't do it. I can't do it by myself. I need you, Jesus. Help me. That's the invitation. See, repentance, believe it or not, is actually a sweet thing. It's, it's a grace. Have you ever thought of repentance like that? You can ask yourself in your heart and in your mind and think about it, but most don't. Most don't. Why is it sweet? Because John didn't only say repent. He said some more things. He said, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's good news. For the one who is coming is greater than I. Oh, he also said, because I baptize you uh, with after for repentance, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, meaning God will give you his living presence to be with you forever and always. See, a hard word can be a healing word. That's, that's the truth here. See, there's such grace in the word repentance. It's a sweet invitation to turn to God who is able to raise up stones to be children of God. And he's able to take out our stony heart and replace it with one that loves him and loves others. And listen, bears fruit. Bears fruit. And here it is. That's it. Right? Get this. Oh, man, I've been praying this week that we would get this. If you repent of your sins, if you confess your sins, if you turn to Christ, then there must be something to show for it. It must affect the way you live. Why? And that's the question you really need to understand if you're going to understand repentance. Because the Holy Spirit of God takes up residency in all who believe, and He is a fruit producer. It's, it's what he does. How can you say that I have the living God dwelling in me, working to be more like Christ? There's just no fruit to bear for it. But you know what the problem is? A lot of times what we think of when we think of fruit is we think of like some superhuman stuff. Can I just tell you right now, your fruit might look like this. You're on 30 and you want the whole world to be annihilated because you're late for work. Or you're late to go to Wally World or Target or Target or wherever you go. And there are people in your way and you just want them all to be annihilated. And you 
may get there from zero to one second right now. And fruit for you might look like it might take 10 seconds before you want just the person in front of you to be annihilated. Is that good enough for fruit inspectors? Maybe not. But guess what? Doesn't matter. Because you're not the one who gets to go around judging and inspecting fruit. Why? Because God's not called you to do that. Why don't you worry about yourself? Why don't you put your face in the Bible and say, where am I not measuring up, God? And then say, oh, God, I'm so glad you measured up for me. And, oh, God, produce that in my life. Produce that in my life. See, listen to this. Galatians 5, through 23 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? And listen to this. The fruit of the Spirit is, 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 capital I-S, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Oh, how many people read this, and then they make the mistake of thinking that we're being told what we should be or ought to be. Well, I know lots of Christians who do this. I know lots of preachers who do this. As a Christian, you should be generous. As a follower, faithful follower, radical follower, we love adjectives. In Christ, you ought to be more patient and more kind. You must become more gentle and more joy-filled. But this list, by the way, is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's proclamation. It is not exhortation. Oh, you think that doesn't matter? I'm telling you right now it matters. Why? Because Paul is not saying become more patient. He's not saying that. Paul is saying the fruit of the Spirit is patience. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. To turn the fruit of the Spirit into aspiration is a stumbling block and you're falling back into law. Don't forget what Paul said earlier in Galatians. Chapter 2, verse 21, he says, If our righteousness were come through the law, then Jesus Christ has died for absolutely no reason. And some might say, well, that's righteousness before God. But also, listen, if you think that righteousness in our active outward living isn't a grace too, well, then you're just right back into law. Just right back into law. Now, that doesn't mean we don't participate. And I'll get to that in a minute. But church fam... What you do not hear in a vineyard is the sound of anyone's effort except the vine dresser who's working and laboring. You never hear a vine shaking its leaves, hoping to grow. You just don't ever see grapes sweating it out. How ridiculous. Fruit does not force itself to grow. It's the byproduct of a healthy plant. It's the byproduct. It's fruit. It's fruit. There's many means to that fruit being grown, but the primary work is done by the Spirit, not by you, not by me. To think that you're responsible for cultivating joy in your life and kindness in your life is to miss Paul's entire point. His point is this, apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you're a dead plant. But in Jesus Christ, you have been made alive. So if you're in Christ, you are bearing fruit. Just might not look like all the fruit your neighbor wants you to have. And your neighbor's most often your spouse. 
gosh, I wish you'd just be more patient. Me too. Pray for me. And I'll keep confessing and trusting that the Lord's going to do it. So now, in and through you, the Holy Spirit can and will grow joy, gentleness, peace, and patience. Why? Because he's committed to it. And he does everything he promises. See, the Holy Spirit does this through. Here's your means. Because I know some of you are like, I need a list. Give me a list, pastor. Here's your list. (laughs) Through humbly reflecting and yielding before the word of God. You've got to be in the word. You've got to be in the word. Not to be saved, but because you are. It's how you know the love of God. So you're in the word. Not so he'll love you more, but because he loves you. And he wants to reveal more of his love to you through his word. And when you're in the word, it's not just like, whew, read my Bible in six months. Overachiever. Go get it though, right? It might just be a text. And by the way, I'm all about you reading your Bible in a year or two years. I'm not putting that down. But if that's your capacity, great. But it might not be everyone's capacity. And that's okay. Just be in the word. And, and you'd be amazed at one sentence in the Word the Lord might use to just speak to you. But here's what you must do if you're going to be in the Word. You must reflect on the Word of God. You've got to create some margin in your life to just spend time with Him. And you f- reflect on it. And then you yield to Him and to His Word. Continually, if you're reading the Bible well, you're continually confessing sin. You're just continually doing it. Why? Because you've not arrived. You're, just, you're reading the Word of God and you're like, yeah, not, no, God, help me. Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. And He does. He's righteous and just to forgive you of your sins and to wash you clean and to clothe you constantly in His righteousness. But what you're confessing, here's, I think, something so important. It's not just your outward bad behavior, but it's your inward bad believing. Oh, we, we just love to be so, I don't watch PG-13 movies, especially at Halloween. That's demonic. Okay, great. But what about the thing that just said that, that then probably looked at your friend who does and says, loser. Do you confess that? Because it's bad believing that leads to bad living. you, you got to get to the root. And you can't necessarily get there, so you've got to ask, Lord, reveal. And almost always, it, it's, it's just pride. It's just you think you're God still. And you're just saying, rip it out, whatever it takes. Well, that's a scary prayer, but I'll tell you, he loves to answer it. And sometimes it might just be a car wreck, or it might be a mental breakdown, or it might be a hundred other things that happen to you. But know this, if you're in Christ, there is no place you can go that his love and mercy and grace is not with you. There are many times that when suffering comes our way, it is mercy in our lives. And he is not held captive to bringing goodness through it. And I'm not saying that is a trite thing. And the goodness he brings is that you might be more like Christ. But it's painful. And so we must be prayerful as we're in the word and as we're confessing, patiently asking him to bring about a change. Because it's a miracle. 
And you know where that happens most primarily? In a gospel community. It's not with you in the woods seeking out acorns. <laughs> uh, it's so easy to want to do that. Why? Because the only person to annoy me is me. And maybe the squirrels. They're somewhat annoying. You get in a community with people, and what they do is they rub you wrong. Why? Because they're not as pretty as you want them to be. And whatever that is that's annoyed by them is what needs to die. That's what needs to die. So, just to be clear, these are not attributes by which you and I work our way to heaven. They're not. It's the work of heaven that has come down and the work that the Holy Spirit is and will do in you. So, to be clear, if you have not repented, turned from your sins, and trusted in Jesus Christ, today's the day of salvation. Don't go one more second, not one more moment. Turn to him and be met with the God of all joy who loves you and sent his son to die in your place. And because he had no sin, resurrected from the grave, defeating Satan, sin, and death so that you might have life with him forever. Forever. And if you're in Christ, oh, praise him. Praise him. And ask him to continue to do this amazing work in your life so that you might love him more. You might love your neighbor like Christ has loved you. And we could love this city in a way that they say, what's different about these people? So that we can say, we've met Messiah. His name is Christ. You get to know him. We would love to introduce you to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing for planning, for preparing, and for joyfully sending Jesus to save sinners like us. God, what we need is we need a stunning revelation of your love upon Jesus' life, upon his death on the cross, and his triumphant resurrection over Satan, sin, and death, so that your love might repent us. Lord, thank you for coming and saving people who had zero chance of ever being lovable enough to come into your presence. Jesus, we thank you for making us lovable, for forgiving our sins, for wiping our record clean, but then for giving us your perfect obedience. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. Have your way with us because your way is always the best. Help us to believe this, we ask in Christ's beautiful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.